Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. next day dawned in a cloudless sky. Although the air was chill, the sun was brilliant, and the wind had dropped. From the scaffold, Hal watched the closed door to the dungeons. Daniel stayed close by his side. In taking Hal's share of the work on his broad shoulders, he was shielding him from Barnard's lash. When Slow John came through the gates and crossed the courtyard to the armoury, with his measured undertaker's tread, Hal stared down at him with stricken eyes. Suddenly, As he passed below the scaffold, Hal snatched up the heavy mason's hammer that lay on the planking at his feet and lifted it to hurl it down and crush the executioner's skull. But Daniel's great fist closed around his wrist. Daniel eased the hammer from Hal's grip as though he were taking a toy from a child and placed it on top of the wall beyond his reach. Why did you do that? Hal protested. I could have killed the swine. To no purpose, Daniel told him with compassion. You cannot save Sir Francis by killing an underling. You would sacrifice your own life and achieve nothing by it. They would simply send another to your father. Mansir brought Sir Francis up from the dungeons. He could not walk unaided on his broken, bandaged feet, but his head was high as they dragged him across the courtyard. Father! Hal screamed in torment. I cannot let this happen! Sir Francis looked up at him and called in a voice just loud enough to reach him on the high wall. Be strong, my son. For my sake, be strong. And those are the last words that Sir Francis Courtney says to Hal, or in the book at any rate, to anybody else. Later that day, he will be put on the rack and tortured, and then he'll be taken out and executed, and his body will be hung, drawn and quartered, and displayed in bits for the world to see. We left our last episode, which was about birds of prey, the first story in sort of historical, chronological terms of the Courtney saga. And the question on which we'd left, will Sir Francis Courtney, privateer, honourable knight Nortonier, and general patriarch of the Courtney clan, give up the secret of where his treasure is hidden, or or not, will he hold it no matter what tortures he undergoes? I hope, I hope. There can have been little doubt, really, what his decision would be. He keeps his vow of silence, a vow which he has also imposed upon Hal, who, of course, has been longing to tell the secret of where the treasure is, because he wants his father to survive. But he has kept his silence. Sir Francis has kept his silence. And thus it is that even though he is put upon the rack immediately after the scene we have just witnessed and tortured to the absolute utmost, no one knows where the Courtney's vast treasure is hidden. 
he's executed, that's Sir Francis. His body is displayed, hung, drawn and quartered in bits for all the world to see. And now Hal Courtney is on his own, having been at the start of Birds of Prey, a relatively innocent teenage boy, he must now become a man. Yes, and it's really interesting the fact that almost the only thing that Sir Francis says to Hal uh, in their sort of last days in Cape Castle, as as Sir Francis is being tortured, is stick to your oath not to reveal the location of the treasure. This is his one absolute obsession, even though it would earn Sir Francis a much quicker and more painless death. And I think it's almost unique to Wilbur that that Hal actually does keep the oath. I think if I was writing this, there is no way I could sell a character who lets his father be racked, tortured, hung, drawn, quartered, just to save some treasure that, even if you were going to get back to it, would would have no consolation for you. Um, Whereas it's a measure of the Courtney's and of Wilbur's, uh, I think, I think strength as a writer to not give the audience what they think they want, that they see this through to the bitter end. I mean, what you do know is that Hal wants to give it up. I mean, the human part of him, well, it's entirely human, but the instinctive son, the boy, the young, young man, wants his father to be alive and wants to give up the, 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 the secret. But he has sworn an oath. And, 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 and he has been raised all his life to take these oaths and the code of honour that comes with being a member of a sort of chivalric order tremendously seriously. So once he has made a vow, he cannot break it. And, and after all, would you, would you save a parent's life if A, you wouldn't really be saving it because they're going to be executed anyway, and, and B, you would be, in a sense, breaking their heart. The last thing they knew would be that you had betrayed the thing that you had sworn to them that you would never betray, the secret that you would never betray. So you would be sending, at that point, Sir Francis's sacrifice has been in vain. Sir Francis's sacrifice of letting himself be tortured. Yeah, and it's quite a, um, I guess it's a recurring theme in Wilbur, is that you, the way you respect someone is by respecting their choice. Um, but before we go on to what happens after the death of Sir Francis, we need to kind of just whiz back a little bit, because one of the things we talked in the, in the, in the first episode about how Birds of Prey is, is a really remarkable book because it, it, it keeps coming back to the same places. and and the same themes, but also that, that, that there isn't just one villain, baddie, whatever, but a whole gallery of them. And there isn't just one love in the young Hal Courtney's life, who, as it were, takes him on the journey from youth to man. There are actually three. There, and, and in a sense, the book can be divided up by the women who are, as it were, influencing, going to bed with, seducing, teasing, loving, caring for, despising, how, at any one point. So the first act of the book, in that respect, 
is the Katinka Act. That is the act defined by Howe's feelings towards the incredibly attractive, seductive, but also manipulative, sadistic, cruel, exploitative, and even violent, the young wife of the Dutch, the incoming Dutch governor of the Cape Colony. And in the bit that we're about to discuss, actually how shifts from woman one to woman two. And woman two, we mentioned her briefly in the, in the previous episode, is Sukina, the half Indonesian, half English, enslaved young woman, whom Hal actually spots as he's getting off the ship which has brought him to um, the Cape Colony as a slave in irons in, in the slave hold. He's stinking. He's filthy. He's he's yeah, he's been lying in his own excrement for for weeks. Yes, he's had a taste of the slave experience. And as he gets off the the ship and walks onto the quayside, he sees very briefly this beautiful, ravishing young woman who looks at him, and they seem to establish some connection. And it turns out that her brother Althuda is actually imprisoned initially in the cell next to, but I think in the end, together with Howe in jail because he's led a slave rebellion. And a connection is made with Sukina and he keeps seeing her. And every time he sees her and every time he compares her to Katinka, there's this sort of slow movement as he begins to understand who Katinka really is. And the real revelation of Katinka for for Howe is at the trial uh, of Sir Francis, where he thinks Katinka will tell the truth uh, and kind of intercede, because um, of course the judge is her husband, and he thinks that she'll intercede on on Hal and Sir Francis' behalf. And instead, she absolutely sticks the knife in and provides the final damning testimony to condemn Sir Francis and Hal. Not that, as you said before, not the verdict was ever in doubt, but this is where the scales really fall from Hal's eyes, and he sees Katinka for, for who she really is. Meanwhile, just to establish how much Katinka is who she really is, <laughs> Sukina is actually belongs to horrible term, but it's I suppose factually accurate. The outgoing governor who is passionately in love with her. Governor Kleinhan. Yes. Katinka is intrigued by this very beautiful Asian girl who is Kleinhan's slave and basically acquires her for herself as he is leaving. And she's also excited by the fact that Sukina clearly hates her, which for Katinka is just delicious because that only means that she can degrade her all the more and effectively what happens is that Katinka kind of makes Sukina her sex slave I mean she's actually forced to to have sex with Katinka and credit to Wilbur here uh, I mean in this book in particular and in other books Wilbur is not uh, averse to writing some pretty explicit sex scenes um, but he actually doesn't do that with Katinka and Sukina. There's a very suggestive scene where um, Katinka is puts her finger in Sukina's mouth, um, and it's absolutely for Katinka. It's, a, it's an incredibly erotic moment, and, and Wilbur captures that very well. But he's making her her lesbian sex slave 
could be exploitative. Uh, and Wilbur actually handles it quite carefully and doesn't go there. In character terms, it is absolutely exploitative in the sense that Katinka is... I mean, yes. When she puts her finger in, 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 in Sukina's mouth, that is an absolute power gesture. It's, yes. it's like, yeah. you have no agency over your own body. You, 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 whatever you think you may, whatever honour you might have, whatever um, um, dignity you might have, whatever rights to decide who you want to share your body with, you think you might have, you don't have any of that. I have all the power. Yeah, you're, you're completely right about that. Although the relationship is absolutely exploitative, I, I don't think Will, Will was actually writing it uh, quite sensitively, um, which is, uh, I think, uh, to his credit. Well, part, partly out of, I think, respect for Sukina, if you see what I mean, because she, she becomes kind of the moral centre of the... I mean, if Sir Francis Courtney, with his particular view of morality, has been the moral centre of the book, around which how kind of orbits... Sukina, in the next act of the book, Sukina is very much um, Hal's lodestar in terms of his his emotions and 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 also, as I say, setting a moral compass. But she's no kind of feeble, compliant cipher, because one of the things we learn is that she has tremendous skill as a herbalist, basically, and as a, a sort of apothecary. She goes up onto the slopes of Table Mountain and gathers plants, which she uses to create healing potions and what have you, which, for which she's acquired quite a reputation in the colony, that people go and see her rather than the kind of doctors, because she's actually much more likely to come up with something which helps them. But of course, if you know how to mix plant um, extracts for, for medicinal purposes, you also know how to mix them for the purposes of poison. And as nice and sweet and lovely as Sukina is, and as helpful and kind and healing as she can be, she can also be as cold-blooded as any Katinka and any Courtney. Because what she does when her former master, Kleinhans, sets sail back to Holland, she takes her revenge upon him and upon all the ways he's degraded her. She tells him she's prepared a little basket of medicines for him, which he depends upon to, to keep his ailing stomach and guts and whatever from overcoming him. And she's put it in his luggage. And so she has. What she hasn't told him, however, is that beneath the little piece of paper, which I think has her slavery on it, as well as the terms in which she's been made a slave. Underneath that piece of paper is a poisonous snake which she has found and, and sort of semi-tamed on the slopes of Table Mountain. So when he lifts up the piece of paper, he is struck by the snake and dies a terrible death. So she, in the end, is as much of a killer as every other person in this book is capable <laughs> of being. Yeah, it's true. And of course, her he had been responsible, I think, for brutally executing her father. That's right, he had. Which again sort of echoes um, the, the, the way in which uh, Hal's father has been brutally executed by the Dutch. Uh, there, is, there, is, there are a lot of bodies in this section of the book. Um, and it feels, again, as a, as a writer, it feels a bit like Wilbur's clearing the decks a bit. It's also worth saying at this point 
as a writer. You've already written, I don't know, 400 pages in terms of what's in a book. You've, you've, you've got a setup whereby, at, this, at the point we kind of left it, the hero's father has been killed. The hero is essentially kind of enslaved. The woman he used to love, he now knows is a baddie. He now has somebody who he thinks he can love instead, though they've yet to really be together. You'd think, okay, we're coming up to the final act now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to resolve all of this. Yeah. That's one important thing to note, which is that Aboli has acquired a certain degree of, of freedom, I think mostly because people underestimate him. And they think he's tamed, as it were, and he's not. And Sukina is helping him. And we also know that, needless to say, Katinka is grievously mistreating the horses that Aboli is looking after because she just rides them and whips them and spurs them half to death. Anyway, Aboli has managed to get out of the camp, at, of, of the colony at night. He's crossed the, the, um, the sort of hedge, really, of bitter almonds. The, the bitter almond fence hedge. Yeah. And he has killed a great bull and wrapped and taken, he's taken the body of Sir Francis Courtney, the bits of the body of Sir Francis Courtney, down off the walls where they're being displayed. He's taken them out of the colony. He's found a, a, a cave looking out to sea and he's kind of wrapped Sir Francis's body in, in the hide of this bull. And, and we're told it's going to harden. It's almost like a, a hardness of a sarcophagus. And he's buried Sir Francis looking out to sea, surrounded by a little model of a ship and a cup and a knife and so, so things he can carry with him into the afterlife. So he essentially has given Sir Francis a kind of a ceremonial burial, which is kind of an important kind of coda to, to Sir Francis's life. That now being settled, it's time to get out, which they do by using Sukina's potions um, put into the food that is being made for the garrison of the castle to kind of essentially give them the most terrible stomach ups, those mild poison which leaves them all helpless with vomiting and diarrhea and God knows what, which enables our heroes and heroine, Sakina, to get out. Yeah, because meanwhile, Abelie has used his position as coachman to kidnap Katinka and Governor Vandervelde, and he's brought them to the castle where he threatens to kill Vandervelde uh, unless uh, they let um, Hal and the others go. Uh, so everyone's involved. It's, I mean, it's, this, is, this takes up about, this whole escape sequence takes up about 50 pages right in the heart of the book. It is just absolutely 50 pages of nonstop action in a book which doesn't lack for action. And everyone's involved. So Abelie's involved, Katinka's involved, Vanderville's involved, Hal's involved, obviously uh, Big Daniel and uh, Ned Tyler, his sort of sidekicks are involved. Um, Althuda is involved. Um, the the whole gang is uh, Schroeder, of course, is involved uh, in trying to stop them. He's chasing after them. Yeah, he's chasing after them. Uh, so the entire cast, <laughs> the ones who are still alive, are, are assembled for this this massive set piece uh, escape. It the, it does the thing which really really good action sequences do, which is that one exciting sequence is not enough. So. There's a very exciting sequence just getting out. Yeah. Then there's another exciting sequence, 
of sort of being chased across open country because Schroeder and, and, and the troops go after them. Yeah. And they're greatly outnumbered. Yeah. And there's a, then there's a sort of final kind of showdown in the hills outside Cape Town because Althuda's fellow escapees, some of some in the in the kind of prison in the slave breakout he organised, some people got away and they're aiming to join up with the people who've got away. Yeah, they're sort of living as sort of uh, in the mountain. Well, as 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 runaway slaves did. I mean, you know, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, it's not just like the Maroons in Jamaica, like the Maroons, absolutely, exactly like that. So, you know, you have you have a, a getaway scene, you have a chase, you have a a battle against the odds is on and on and on yeah and because and to add um injury to insult uh in the course of escaping from the prison hal has been bitten uh by a hound because of course the over the prison overseer keeps these two enormous hounds um, yes and this wound is gradually well it's you know it's bleeding it's and it's starting to fester and so the further they go, the slower Hal is able to go. Yes. Um, and it ends where the others have gone on ahead and he and Abilie have s- are sort of bringing up the rear partially because they have to because Hal's going so slowly, but also to try and delay Schroeder and the chasing Dutch army while the others try and escape into the mountains. And the, the, the t- there's this wonderful, again, wonderful, wonderful bit. I mean, it's almost comic in a way where they're going up this mountain pass and it's a switchback. Um yeah. So for a while, the switchback, and you've got the soldiers sort of on the next switchback down. So for a while, you're going away from them. But then as you cross back across the mountain face, you come back into range of the muskets again. Yes. Um, and so the, 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 ch- the pursuers, all, for, you know, for a while, don't even have to chase them. They just have to wait for them, for the path to inevitably bring them back um, sort of into gunshot. It's, it's incredibly well um, choreographed. And it, I think we can say Hal survives. Hal survives. Aboli survives. Just, just by the skin of their. Teeth. Of course, of course, just, of course. just by the skin yeah. of their. Teeth. It's an action sequence. Schroeder has to go back to uh, Cape Town, the Cape Colony, with his tail between his legs, having not caught them. And for Schroeder, and indeed one other important, two other characters actually, and we've been talking about. Things are going to get a lot worse. Yeah, yes, they are. So we we mentioned that um, Abilie had captured or sort of kidnapped um, Katinka and the governor Vandervelde. They've let them go now, so they are back in Cape Town, um, and the governor is none too impressed with the fact that all these prisoners have broken out from Cape Castle um, on his, and he knows that he is going to be blamed for it. So van der Velde, um, like the coward, the cretin he is. Poltroon. Poltroon. Like the poltroon that he is, um, blames Schroeder uh, for the whole thing, because Schroeder is technically the commander of the castle, uh, and sacks him. Um, and sa- he says he's going to send him back to Holland. He's going to write to the Dutch government and say, this was all Schroeder's fault. So Schroeder's career is in ruins. And for a man who is as sort of as much as stickler for his pride and his honor as Schroeder, this is an absolute disaster. But Schroeder has, um, well, he has, he has a hope and he has a, a plan because into this moment, a ship called the Golden Bow has arrived, uh, which, as it happens, uh, captained by yet another Notonier knight, 
um, in English ship, but because they're everywhere, they're just everywhere, you they are everywhere. This this one, as it turns out, is a Welshman um, to confer with the Scotsman and the Englishman. <laughs> actually, it's, actually, it's the Englishman, the Scotsman, and Welshman. It is. They never actually at any point. They don't at any point walk into a bar, though, do they? Uh, no, they they walk into various kind of firefights, but um, no, they don't. No. Um, so Schroeder, the other thing we've we've omitted to mention is that while Hal has been uh, imprisoned in the castle, uh, being treated as slave labour, uh, Schroeder has finally consummated his affair with Katinka, and now he is convinced that she is in love with him. So he just devises this plan that he will get to Katinka, and together they will run away aboard the Golden Bow, this new ship that's arrived. Uh, and go off to seek his fortune and avoid the um, the punishment that Van der Velde intends. So, as you do, Schroeder goes to collect Katinka from her house, uh, knocks on her bedroom door, and there is no answer. So he's kind of um, cre- sneaks in unannounced and finds her in bed with Slow John the Executioner. Yes. So, yeah, Schroeder bursts in and... Um, I think it's fair to say he has a bit of a moment. He kind of, I guess, in in modern parlance, I don't. It's like a fugue state, or a, you know, the, again, the red mist. So he, um, the other thing, just as a detail, he of course at this point has the Neptune sword because he's taken it off um, Hal. So with the Neptune sword, he kills Slow John. Katinka starts screaming. Um, and Schroeder can't bear her screaming. And he is so in such a sort of crazed mental state that he kills her. Yes. It's an absolutely shocking scene. It is, but I think it's very accurate. I mean, actually, I think that of all the ways in which people are killed in this book. Of which there are many. That is almost, of which there are many. That is almost the closest to, as it were, a real life crime. Yeah, it's true. That sense of, I was just trying to shut her up. Yeah, and then uh, I, I didn't mean to kill her. I, what have I done? My God, that's the last person on earth I'd want to kill. I want to. I want to run away with her. I want to be with her. I want to. Lo- I want to love her. Mm. Um, but I just went and killed her, and I, I, I suspect that 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 in the kind of forensic terms. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That is something which actually happens a lot. Yeah, but people don't. But suddenly there's a dead person in front of them. Yeah, and Schroeder, who's who's such a kind of who's very used to killing people deliberately, yeah. suddenly finds himself covered in blood, having inexplicably to mm. him killed the person he most wants to live. Yeah. I think as well from a, uh, we talked about the structure of this, sort of the absolutely helter-skelter structure of this novel. And again, you don't see it coming because you think Katinka is a major character who's going to um, see us through, you know, to, until nearly the end of the book. But it's interesting. I, again, sort of putting myself in Wilbur's shoes, I'm imagining what he's thinking is that she has fulfilled her purpose in the story. She has given Hal his sexual awakening, yes, 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 and then that sort of heart, the heartbreak of seeing that she wasn't who he thought she was. Um, her her function in this story is done. Um, and again, Wilbur, I think, is just thinking, right? Let's, let's get rid of her. Um, you know, she she served her purpose as a character. But also, you've done another thing. But she's, which is you've put one of your main characters in jeopardy. Mm, and even yeah, though they're an antagonist, even though they're the bad guy, nevertheless, their jeopardy is a useful plot engine. Yeah. So very, 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 very briefly, Schroeder escapes. He gets upon the first ship he can find, which is the ship with the Welshman, um, say, Llewellyn. Captain Llewellyn. Absolutely. Of course he is. Of course um, he is. 
and he gets aboard the ship. And he's like, okay, he's got aboard the ship. He's made his getaway. That'll do. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because, because in the course of the voyage, Schreider has to pick a fight. The, the ship they've got on board for Golden Bar was commissioned and owned by a very wealthy aristocrat, Viscount, Viscount Winterton. 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 Yeah. So that his son, Vincent, can... It's been, I think it's Vincent. Is it young Vincent? Yes. Yeah, it is Vincent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that his son can, as it were, um, have adventures and make a man of himself on a beautiful boat commissioned by Daddy <laughs> out there in the Indian Ocean. Schroeder gambles with Winston because he's desperate to increase his money, loses, then accuses Winston of cheating, which which compels Winston to call him out in a duel because his honour, you know, he, he would lose all sense of honour if he didn't do this. And and then this, in turn, this, this little crunchy detail will become of considerable significance later on because we are heading, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the first, not the second, but the third battle of Elephant Lagoon. Yeah, uh, yes, because um, the buzzard uh, is still obsessed with finding the treasure that's hidden at the Elephant Lagoon. So he has bought the three black sailors uh, from the um, from Francis's crew. He's bought, they bought them as slaves and he's taking them with him because he's convinced that they know where the treasure is hidden. So he is already at the Elephant Lagoon digging for treasure. Meanwhile, a storm's blown up at sea, um, affecting the uh, the Golden Bow. Uh, so Schroeder and Captain Llewellyn uh, and uh, poor Vincent Winterton have taken refuge in the Elephant Lagoon. And who should they find there but our old friend, the Buzzard, um, who has obviously returned there to try and dig up the treasure that he knows must be buried somewhere nearby. And it's sort of comical because he's dug trenches all over the place. Um, and of course, the joke is that the treasure is not buried under the beach or the ground. It's actually in this cave in a cliff up the river. But the buzzard doesn't know that. So, yeah, Schroeder and the buzzard uh, and Llewellyn uh, all kind of meet up. And this is where you sort of get a sense of what kind of chivalric order the Knights Notonier are. Because it turns out there's no love lost between Llewellyn and the buzzard, because actually the last time they met, they, they fought over the division of the spoils. So it's it's not the most kind of fraternally loyal order of knights, you'd have to say. Um, it's just the buzzard keeps on lowering the tone. I think that's really the problem here. He's just not, he's not a proper chap. He's really not a proper chap. And, and he then ends up being the second to Schroeder in a, in a, in a fateful duel. Yes, so in fact, he, yes, that's right. The buzzard is such not a proper chap that he arranges the duel where he will be the second for Schroeder and Llewellyn will be the second for young Vincent Winterton. And they arrange the duel on the beach and it's all set up for this sort of affair of honour. But of course, um, the buzzard being the buzzard, there's nothing honourable about it at all. And first of all, Schroeder shows off his incredible sword fighting prowess by um, killing uh, Vincent Winterton in the in the duel, and the moment that happens, uh, the signal is given, and it turns out that the entire thing is a massive ambush for the Golden Bow's crew and Captain Dwellen, and they are all, well, mostly all, ruthlessly cut down and their ship seized. And who is given command of the Golden Bow now that it's been seized by the Buzzard? None other than our old friend Sam Bowles. 
I think it's worth pointing out that to anybody whose head may be completely spinning at this point, that we first met Sam Bowles as a humble crewman um, aboard the Lady Edwina, which was the first ship that Hal and Sir Francis were on, because the ships change as much as the women. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, there are three ships and there are three women in the story. Yeah, see? And there, there are, by my count, five or even six baddies. So Sam Bowles was the, was the, was the sort of cowardly, snivelling, nasty little piece of work. Who who kind of first tried to steal Lady Edwina while while Sir Francis was busy taking the Dutch merchantman, um, and then by a series of he sort of one of these people who fails upwards. But anyway, he's ended up being being the buzzard's henchman, and as a reward for all his henching, <laughs> he's now suddenly finds himself as the captain of a ship. He's Captain Bold, Captain Bold. Yeah. So yes, he as I say, every t- every time he does something despicable, he sort of um, rises up, up the ladder. I know it's like being a corporate executive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. evil ink or a pol- or a politician. Yeah, indeed. Um, meanwhile, while they've been double crossing each other at the Elephant Lagoon, how Sakina Abodi and their party have been crossing uh, effectively. A diagonal line from Cape Town northeast to the Elephant Lagoon, wherever the Elephant Lagoon exactly may be. Uh, Hal and his gang and the uh, runaway former slaves whom they've encountered and Sukina and all the crew members who are still alive and Altuda and Aboli are heading across country and are discovering the wildlife of the interior of Africa, which at that point was completely unknown to white Europeans um, who, who didn't venture beyond the coastlines. Yes, there's a bit where they, where they see a rhinoceros and they don't even, they, it's the first time they've even conceived of a rhinoceros. Um, and the, and, the, and Abolish shows them how to, how to make traps with sort of tasty bits of meat which, which can be eaten by crocodiles and, and then there, there are spikes which are being held by, by, by kind of straps of hide and the the gastric juices of the crocodile dissolve the straps which are holding the spikes in place, and then the trap springs open and stabs the crocodile from within, causing them to die a violent death. I love that detail. And again, I had to think, is that actually a thing, or is Wilbur just invented <laughs> that? Because it's so mad that... Uh, but equally, you could see how it would work. So, um, yeah. And, and also, they make gunpowder yes. because Sukina has found some deposits of yellow sulfur which she thinks will be useful for making um, uh, drugs of i mean medicinal drugs of various kinds and there are also rabbits who live in the area who've been urinating down the sides of cliffs and their urine over thousands upon well, millions of years has sort of dried into a sort of coating a thick coating on the rock and and yeah. Hal realizes that if you combine urine, sulfur, and charcoal, what you've got is gunpowder. So they've made gunpowder, which means that the fact they've run out of gunpowder when they were trying to keep all of the Schroeder's mob at bay is not a problem anymore. So they are are heading towards the bay, fully armed and loaded for bear, as the saying goes. Uh, They've got their gunpowder, as we discussed. They've found out how to cross crocodile-infested rivers, uh, as we've discussed. Um, Hal and Sukina have, again, consummated their love, which they felt from the moment they first set eyes on them, on each other. Uh, and Sukina is now pregnant. 
Uh, Sukina also, like Sir Francis, is an adept of the horoscope and reading the stars. And also like Sir Francis, she has uh, looked into her future and she's strangely reticent uh, on the subject and and, um, won't uh, tell Hal what she has seen, which uh, is possibly a bad sign. It's not a good omen. Uh, but, of course, the nature of the stars and the destiny is that you just have to follow it blindly wherever it leads. Uh, and in this case, it leads us back to the Elephant Lagoon. So Hal and his uh, gang finally make it to the Elephant Lagoon. And this is where they find the advantage of fighting a third battle in the same place uh, where they've already fought two other battles, because there's all sorts of useful kit lying around. One of which, and this is quite a small scene, but it's sort of it's very telling in, in Hal's character development, is they've left Sir Francis left some muskets and other weapons in the treasure cave where he where he'd hidden his treasure that he died rather than reveal the location of. And Hal now actually breaks his oath and he takes Abilly into his confidence and he takes him to the treasure cave so they can get the weapons. Um and nothing really comes of it in terms of there's no great guilt there's no cosmic reparations for the fact he's broken his oath but it is again i think it's it's, it's a step on hal's road to maturity that he is able to kind of break free of his father's influence and actually make his own decisions well now he's the boss now i mean and and it's his treasure i mean that's the other thing he's inherited everything so actually it really doesn't matter what his father thought the other thing they've left lying around is a couple of the fire rafts that they didn't have time to launch um during the first battle of the elephant lagoon uh, and which are handily still lying there, complete with their cargo of pitch-soaked branches um, in the uh, you know around the, in the mangrove swamps at the edge of the lagoon. Abberley caches some gunpowder in two big barrels on the edge of the buzzard's camp with two um, fuses attached, one a quick fuse and one a long fuse. The first explosion is designed to attract the attention of all the buzzards' men. The second explosion is designed to kill them all. This succeeds significantly. Abilie and the three black captives, his fellow tribespeople, escape and get away. Meanwhile, Hal uses the fireships to board the Golden Bower and overpower the, power the crew, including the new skipper, the odious uh, Sam Bowles, and escape, sail away. This time, he is the one who escapes. And the buzzard and Schroeder are left on the shoreline, watching them go. And the buzzard reflects to Schroeder that he's come to the conclusion that nobody aside from Sir Francis, knew where the treasure was hidden. And there's just no point trying to dig up any more beach or dig up any more holes anywhere. And by the way, he has heard of another war somewhere else that might be fun to get into. This is not the first time The first time one has said, this is where the book could end. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. If I had written this book, first of all, <laughs> I wouldn't have got close to it. But... Um, we're by this point we're on about page six hundred and fifty, um, six hundred something. Um, we've had a 
what in any for any other writer would have been the final climactic showdown where the main antagonists and the main protagonists were all united and against the odds victory for Hal and his crew. Um, he's you could easily have him. He's there. He's got Sukina. He's got the treasure uh, sort of available to him if he stays in um, Elephant Lagoon. You could easily write a quick kind of climactic battle between the Buzzard and Schroeder uh, and end the novel there. And the reader would feel they'd got more than their money's worth. But this being Wilbur, as you say, we've not even really got to, to in a sense, the point of the story. Um, because the point of the story is several thousand miles north. We had thought that we'd be able to do the second half of Birds of Prey in just one episode. But it turns out that's not possible because there is still so much more to tell about this book that we're going to have to do a third episode, which will be coming up next week. In which we will be meeting not one, but two legendary rulers of uh, semi-mythical kingdoms of Africa, the Monomotapa uh, and the legendary Prester John. So now the book takes on Another two completely different subjects, one of which, and we've mentioned this in passing in the first episode, I think, one of which is the idea of a, a, a black African emperor, the Malamotapa, who has an empire somewhere in Central Africa that we would now think of as being kind of Zimbabwe, Zambia. On the, on the banks of the Zambezi River, effectively, which listeners who've listened to our episode on the Zambezi will know all about. Exactly. And also the idea of a Christian king somewhere in Africa, possibly in Ethiopia, which is one of the great, in many ways, the oldest Christian church in the world. This idea of a essentially white Christian king somewhere in the heartland of Africa, which has been a part of, of, of European folklore for centuries. Yes, the Prester John. The Prester John. And both these characters will now appear in the final act of the book. So until then, it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. And it's goodbye from me, Tom Harper. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.